Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 8. We'll finish this chapter looking at the interpretation given by the angel Gabriel of Daniel's vision. So it's important now, we're going to read this interpretation given by the angel Gabriel of the vision. So when we want to understand Daniel's vision... We need to follow what Gabriel says. I mean, we're on safe ground when it comes to interpreting then the meaning of the vision going with the angel, because he's telling us here the significance of it. And I love the fact that in the Bible, when you have difficult passages, oftentimes the interpretation is there. We don't need to guess at the meaning. Jesus did this with his parables when he interpreted the parable of the sower. And the parable of the wheat and the tares, the disciples, they had no clue. Lord, what does this mean? And Jesus went on to explain it. He's not trying to hide it, hiding it from some, but not his disciples. He wanted them to understand, so he gives the interpretation of the parables. And that's the way the Word of God is. God isn't playing games with us and trying to hide things from us. He wants us to understand his Word. So let me read now. I'm not going to go back and read the vision itself. We're going to go right to the interpretation, which is beginning at verse 15 to the end of the chapter. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. Remember, he was on, on this canal a couple hundred miles away from Babylon. He was carried there in his vision to Uli. He wasn't actually on location, but in the vision he was. And he heard this man's voice, and notice it called, the voice called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Now, who commands angels? Only God. So we have to understand that this man's voice was the voice of Yahweh. So he came near when I stood. He came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and he made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be in the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns... These are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. 
Who's the first king of Greece? Alexander the Great. He was the one who conquered the world and brought about the Grecian Empire. And as for the horn that was broken, that is Alexander, his death, and in the place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with, the, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limits... A king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction. And destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings... That had been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So let's look, first of all, verses 15 to 19, Daniel's encounter with the angel Gabriel. So Daniel, he wants to understand it, which is kind of interesting because he understood all dreams and dark sayings previously, but his own vision he didn't understand. But he wanted to understand it. And we should desire to understand it. And we're going to have to seek. Desiring is not enough. We need to seek it. We need to search it. You know, the New Testament talks about laboring in the Word. There's officers in the church that their calling is to labor in the Word. Not to play in the Word, but to labor in the Word. That involves some work, some diligence, some attention and time to what the Word of God says. I want to understand these things. I want to, I personally, I've always said this, I want to understand everything that God has revealed about himself in order to know him. And that should be your desire if you're a Christian. Don't take it for granted what somebody tells you. Seek it out for yourself. Dig into the word of God. We need to be students of scripture seeking to know everything that God has revealed about himself. Every, everything. And even then, when we think we've arrived and we're theologians of of the Word of God, there's more that we do not know about God than what He has revealed. Never forget that. There's things about God that you know and I know nothing about, that God could not reveal to us about Himself. 
He's way more than what is in the Bible. There's a hymn by one of the Wesleys that talks about God being a bottomless abyss. A line like that. And I agree completely with that. That there is an infinite... He's an infinite being. There's infinite things that we're going to know about Him. And this will carry us on in through eternity. We will always be learning about the Creator and the Redeemer who delivered us. Daniel says, Behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. Now if you go over to chapter 9 and verse 21, we're told about Gabriel that he's called the man Gabriel. He's an angel. This is one of the few... Daniel, in fact, is the only Old Testament book that names two angels. No other book in the Old Testament has names any of the angels other than Lucifer, who's named in Isaiah 14. We're told what Satan's original name was, the son of the morning, Lucifer. But other than that, the only Old Testament book that names angels is Daniel. He names two, Gabriel and Michael. Gabriel is mentioned twice, Michael's named three times. But he's called a man here because he appeared as a man. Angels are able to materialize and look like people. We know that from the three visitors that came to Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis chapter 19, they appeared as men and then went on to Sodom and so on. So, so when he says, behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, he's seeing Gabriel there. And then the voice that speaks in the voice of a man who is God tells Gabriel, who's there in front of Daniel, Tell Daniel what the meaning is of his vision. So that's how we're to understand the text here. Notice Daniel's response, and this would be typical of any human encounter with the angelic. Every time it happens in the Bible, nearly, there's fright, there's fear when a person encounters an angel. They're amazing creatures, but they're creatures. They're not God. Very powerful, amazing, beautiful creatures. But here Gabriel appears as a man, but it's still overwhelming to Daniel, and Daniel's frightened by it. Notice that Gabriel calls Daniel son of man. He doesn't call him by name. He calls him the son of man. In other words, Daniel belongs to the human family. That's what it means. Weak, mortal, unlike angels that are powerful and immortal creatures. They don't die, but man in his physical body does deteriorate and die. He's a son of man. Now we come to a very important statement. Verse 18. Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. This is a very important phrase. By that, it does not mean the end of time itself or the end of history. That's not what it means here. Because if you go down to verse 26, 
Daniel was told to seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. So it's not referring to the actual end of history. Now, some of the Daniel does. Chapter 12 refers to the end in the real sense of the end, the end of human history, the end of time. But this is not referring to the end of history or the end of time. It's talking about the end of a, of a special period of time. The end of this period that's going to be described for us here when Antiochus, Antiochus is ruling and persecuting the Jews. Notice verse 19. It's explained for us there. Daniel, he almost goes unconscious here, and Gabriel gets him up, verse 18. But in verse 19, he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, the, in, the, the latter end of the indignation. What it, that's referring to wrath, indignation or wrath. Wrath would be synonymous, namely God's. Wrath, God's displeasure, God's indignation. There's a period of wrath or indignation that his people Israel are going to go through. It's a, it's a limited period of time. It's going to encompass some years, 2,300 days, we're told, actually, previously in the, the vision itself, how long it lasts. This is the harsh treatment, the oppression, the persecution of the Jews by Antiochus. It's a a specific period of time. Notice he says that it is the appointed time of the end. It's the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So there's the phrase again, the time of the end. But notice here he says the appointed time of the end. What does that tell us? Well, God, God has boundaries around this period of time. He's the sovereign. He's in control. He's ruling. His will is being done. There's a beginning point and an ending point to this time, this period of indignation or wrath. And the vision pertains to that period and that it's going to terminate. It's going to have an ending. It's not going to go on forever. In other words, this is good news to the Jews, actually. (laughs) Yes, the Lord has given his people a heads up in the future. But what Daniel is seeing is 400, almost 400 years ahead in the future. The vision is dealing with something four centuries in the future. But he says, seal up the vision for its, it says many days from now. Yes, many days, four centuries of days. Antiochus comes along in the second century out of the Grecian Empire. What century is Daniel living in? He's in the sixth century BC. He's four, he's four centuries earlier. You understand why the critics of the Old Testament, they want to say that Daniel actually wrote this in the second century. Because it's so accurate, his description. They do not believe in a Daniel, that Daniel wrote it in the sixth century. Daniel is in the Babylonian kingdom. He was deported in 605 B.C. 
by Nebuchadnezzar. He went as a young Jewish man to Babylon as a captive. He spent his whole life in captivity in Babylon, and, and he lived so long, he, he got to see the kings of the Medes and the Persians, Darius and Cyrus. Daniel lived to be an old man into his 90s. So this is the end of the period of indignation, this period in Israel's history that's characterized by God's displeasure. And so the vision has to do with the end or the termination of this period of wrath. So the vision is revealing what is going to take place during the indignation, during this period, the time of the end, the appointed time of the end. I hope that's clear. I'm laboring to try to make it clear. I hope that you were able to follow that. So this is... Daniel's initial encounter with Gabriel, he's setting the stage for the interpretation by telling him this background to the vision, that it, when it, what it pertains to, what period of time. So let's go back for a moment. Back in chapter 7, we read about the little horn that comes out of the fourth empire. Remember? The fourth beast that was like a monster that Daniel could not describe. He couldn't compare it to a lion, a leopard, or a bear. He said it had teeth of iron, claws of bronze. It was crushing and smashing everything that got in its way. This is the Roman Empire. It's the fourth empire in Daniel's vision and in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the second chapter of the statue of the four different metals. The same course of history was predicted in both chapters. Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, Greece, and then Rome. The four great world empires. Out of the fourth empire came the little horn that grew up among the ten horns that were on this animal. And it knocked out three. The one little horn. That we believe is linked, I, I linked it to Revelation 13, the portrait of the, New, of the New Testament Antichrist. Because of the parallels with, with Revelation 13 and Daniel 7. This little horn does not come out of the fourth empire, does not come out of Rome. It comes out of Greece, the third empire. Antiochus Epiphanes IV. So don't confuse the two horns. They're from different time periods, different empires. So it's important to re remember that. So I already went over um, the goat and the ram. We're told who they stand for. But drop down again to when... Alexander dies, portrayed when the horn, the single horn on the goat in the middle of its head gets broken. That's the death of Alexander. That's the end of his rule. What happens? Four other horns come up in its place. This is, this is an amazing prophecy. 
Because this is exactly what happened. Alexander's kingdom was divided up into four parts. After, not immediately after his death. It took, took, took a lot of time, actually. But eventually, his empire was ruled by his four generals. They know what their names were, and they know what areas they ruled. A man named Cassander, he was given Greece and Macedonia as his region. Now, these are many kingdoms, smaller kingdoms, but they come out of Alexander's empire. And then there was Lysimachus, who was given Thrace and Asia Minor, that is, western Turkey and what is today Bulgaria, around the Aegean Sea. That was his area of rule. Then another general by the name of Ptolemy, but you spell it P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, Ptolemy. He was given Egypt. Palestine, the land of the Jews, and southern Syria. And then Seleucus was given northern Syria, Mesopotamia, so it's going east, and some regions way over on the east. That was his rule. Antiochus Epiphanes comes out of that empire, Seleucus. He was a Seleucid king, a Seleucid king. It's a funny name that they use to to identify him. He was part of that dynasty of the Seleucids. But notice it adds concerning those four kingdoms that they were not with his power. That is, they didn't exert the same strength, the same power that Alexander did over the whole kingdom. So they're rulers, but they're not on a par with Alexander the Great. Now notice this, verse 23. At the latter end of their kingdom, at the latter end of the Grecian Empire, which went on for a few hundred years, actually. Alexander conquered in Alexander died in 323. Antiochus, he comes on the scene in 171. So we've got a few hundred years in there. So the Grecian Empire lasted a while. So, at the latter end of the Grecian Empire, so it's taken us to the time of Antiochus, you see? Because that's near the end. Before Rome then takes takes over and becomes the dominant power. Notice how he describes it. At the latter end of their kingdom, when, this is an interesting idea that's put here. When the transgressors have reached their limit. Some of the translations have transgressions. To me, it's kind of the same. Transgressions or transgressors. This is defining the time period when when Antiochus is going to arise, because the very next thing it says is... A king of bold face, 
and so on arises. So at the time when transgression has reached its limit, actually Antiochus is going to be the central figure, the central transgressor who commits the transgressions that fills up, and I'm going to use biblical language here, fills up the cup of their iniquity. This is, a, this is an idea that's found way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 15, of, of sin reaching a certain level and then God judges because of it. Abraham, uh, God cut a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And he tells Abraham that his, he's going to have many descendants, but they're going to go away into, an, they're going to be slaves, servants in another nation for a long time. He's talking about their future captivity in Egypt, actually, when they grew into a great nation. They're going to become a great nation and then come back to the land of Canaan to take possession of Canaan. But God says that isn't going to happen now because the sin of the Amorites, the iniquity of the Amorites, is not yet full. Who are the Amorites? That's one of the Canaanites, one of the tribes, one of the tribal Cain, uh, one of the tribal nations that belong to the Canaanites that involve several different factions. The Amorites were destined for destruction, but it wasn't time for that to happen to them because their level of sin had not reached the max, according to God. In other words, this, this gives a real insight into God's patience with sinful man. That he bears and forbears man's iniquity for centuries before judgment falls. God was going to put up with the Canaanites. And then Israel, many, year, many centuries later, was going to come in and under Joshua when he commanded them to destroy the Canaanites and take possession of the land, that's when judgment was going to be meted out to the Canaanites and to the Amorites in particular who occupied that land. So this is the idea. When the transgressors have reached their limit, and they're going to reach their limit under Antiochus, then judgment is going to fall. Notice how Antiochus is described. He's a king of a bold face, or as some translations have, a fierce countenance. This is talking about somebody who's insolent, he's shameless, he's uh, determined and defiant. But now we're told something interesting about him, that he, notice, what is it he's going to do? He understands riddles. <laughs> this is an odd thing that is said here. He understands riddles. So I looked into this, and this word is used, um, same word is used when the Queen of Sheba visited Solomon. She had heard about Solomon's wisdom. 
<laughs> what a reputation Solomon had. It spread clear to where this queen came from, Sheba. And she came, and it says that she came to Solomon to ask difficult questions, is how it's translated, 1 Kings 10.1. Same word. So, and then the idea of riddles is used many, many times in Judges 14 concerning Samson when he married that woman and he propounded a riddle for his guests that were at his wedding. Now, he uses it over and over again there, and it's actually riddle there. But it's talking about difficult sayings, hard sayings. In other words, this is, talking, this is saying something about the man's intelligence. He's not ordinary intelligence. He's, got, he's, he's gifted in, intellectually, Antiochus. Some said that he was a talented and an accomplished politician. That, that might be uh, something that connects with his intelligence. Then look at this. Verse 24. His power shall be great, but it's careful to add, but not by his own power. Hmm. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. You know what they're saying to us? Who, who drives him? Who is behind him? Who empowers and energizes this wicked ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes IV? Well, we have an insight. There's two Old Testament passages that give us an understanding of the fall of Satan in the Bible. God has lifted the veil for us in two places that gives us the revelation and understanding of why Lucifer became the adversary, the chief enemy and adversary of God and God's people. It's Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. These two Old Testament passages. But what is interesting about those passages is they begin by addressing, in Isaiah 14, the passage begins addressing the king of Babylon. It's a message for the king of Babylon. In Ezekiel 28, he addresses the prince of Tyre. The Tyre, you know, is up in the, on the coast north of Israel. It was a Gentile area over there. The Syrophoenician woman came from that area, who's recorded in Matthew 15. The woman who had a daughter that was under the influence of a demon. And in those passages, these two rulers, the king of Babylon and the prince of Tyre, are being addressed... And they merge right into a description of the fall of Satan. Now, why do you suppose it does that? Because the devil is the one who is behind these rulers. He's the one that energizes wicked, evil dictators, rulers, kings, presidents, whoever they might be. Ever since, they're 
They do not rule in a vacuum all by their lonely selves. There is a power behind them that puts the thoughts in their mind, gives them the will and the desire to do certain things, to make edicts, decrees, and so on and so forth. We're told in the New Testament, the Antichrist, I brought this out when we were dealing with chapter 7, that the the beast that comes out of the sea in, in Revelation 13, right away it tells us in the third verse that it was the the red dragon in the previous chapter, which is Satan. Revelation 12 is about the dragon, that's the devil, because it tells us in the text it's him. That he is the one who gives the authority to the beast. So this is, this is a uniform teaching of the Bible. That human beings do not rule all by themselves. There is a spirit world. The powers of darkness are behind these, these rulers. And it, it, said it, it says it to us very beautifully right here. His power shall be great. Oh, yes, his power was great, but not by his own power. What a, what a way of saying it. So this isn't just Antiochus who has this power. No, we're, I'm given an explanation of it, of what the Bible means here. This is, this is an indication that there are, there's a dark power behind his power, empowering his power. This explains why Antiochus Epiphanes did something that was, this is what I read, it was bizarre and unthinkable what he did. Because usually the foreign rulers that Israel came under in its history, they respected their culture They protected their culture and their religion. They did not try to change anything. This man did something entirely weird, abnormal, not how his predecessors would have done it. They, they, They wanted the Jews to be content in their kingdoms. They didn't want to stir the Jews up and create a problem by attacking their religion. They wanted to keep it peaceful for them and so that they would be content and happy citizens and subjects of their, of their rule, but not Antiochus. He wanted to impose the Grecian culture and the Grecian false religions on them and make them conform to it. I went, I went over this before. So what happens? He causes, notice the language, he shall cause fearful destruction. Fearful. The word here for fearful is actually a word that's used for miracles in the Old Testament. Want something wonderful and marvelous, only it's to be read in a very negative sense. In other words, something incredible, unbelievable destruction this man brought to them. And notice he's going he's to totally succeed in what he does. He shall succeed in what he does, what he practices. He, he's going to destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints, or the people who are the holy ones. In other words, the Lord's people, the pious Jews. 
who were true worshipers of Yahweh. They are the objects of his persecution, God's people. By his cunning, notice he's known for deceit and trickery. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, I love the way the Word of God says this, makes it clear. Not that he's great in his own mind. So in other words, he has delusions, as we like to say, of grandeur, of greatness, delusions. By giving himself the name Epiphanes, for example, that's not, nobody gave him that name. That was his self-designation, which means God manifest. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, God manifest. He believed that he was an incarnation of Zeus or Jupiter. Same God, one Roman, one Greek. Yeah, that he was God. That is, one of the deities in the pantheon of Grecian polytheism. That was his religion. You know what the Jews called him? Epimenes. This was to mock him. Epimenes means madman. So he, he thought he was Epiphanes, but to them he was Epimenes. And then notice this. this. This shows how deceitful he was and really how treacherous this man was in his dealings with Israel. Without warning, he shall destroy many. So when the people think that everything's peaceful and they're secure and everything seems to be fine, then he came in suddenly and caused fearful destruction. So this, 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 this person that's being described is so wicked, so ruthless, so treacherous, and this is where his sin reaches... It's pinnacle, and he shall even, notice how he says it, and he shall even rise up against who? The prince of princes. This is speaking about God himself. So by declaring himself that he's God manifest, this is an act of rebellion against Yahweh. But the things that he did that I mentioned before, just again, He passed edicts or decrees outlawing Jewish practices. You couldn't read the Torah. He burned the Torah, in fact. He outlawed reading the Torah. He outlawed observing the Sabbath. He outlawed circumcision. He did everything to stamp out the religion of the Jews. He forced them to embrace his Grecian polytheism. But his sin reached a pinnacle when he, then what he did to the temple in Jerusalem. You know, I mentioned it. So you know, outside of the holy place, there was the altar of burnt offering, where the morning and evening sacrifice was made every day. One in the morning and one in the late afternoon. A burnt offering to God constantly. Every day the priest had to kill and burn two animals. 
So there was a constant rise of smoke, constant sacrifice being made to Yahweh to indicate his presence with his people, to maintain the sanctity of the temple. He put another altar on top of the altar of burnt offering, dedicated to Zeus or to Jupiter, same deity, with an image of Zeus or Jupiter that looked like him, by the way. And then he sacrificed a pig on that altar. He made broth from the flesh of that pig, and he sprinkled the broth of this animal around the temple. He did everything he could to defile and desecrate the temple of Yahweh, where God was worshipped. Somebody said that the whore of which a godly Jew, godly Jew regarded this desecration is almost beyond our conception. So, I mean, we could, today in the 21st century, we can't appreciate how horrific this was, what he did, the Zantiochus. So after, see, this, this is where transgressors have reached their limit in this period of indignation, what he did. So that brings the, the, the sin to its max. It peaks, it climaxes here with Antiochus. And then the next thing that we're told is that he shall be broken. Just like the horn was broken on the goat, speaking of the death of Alexander, Antiochus is going to be broken. He died at around 50 years of age. It was an untimely death, and he died a horrible death, the record says. It was attended, I'm quoting now, it was attended with every circumstance of horror and as having every mark of the just judgment of God. He's going to be broken but by no human hand. In other words, he's not going to be killed by an enemy. No man is going to bring about his death, but rather, who's going to bring about his death? Well, God. It's, this is telling us there's going to be divine intervention. God is going to step into this picture, this scene, and in this reign of terror and bring about the end of this period of wrath or indignation. Now, finally, in verses 26 and 27, we got Gabriel's final words and the impact on Daniel. So the vision about the evening and the, and the morning, going back to the vision itself, it talks about 2,300 days, uh, evening and morning. It could be looked at as 2,300 days, or if you see the 2,300 as 2,300 Sacrifices that are missed, two per day, morning and evening sacrifice, then we're talking about 1,150 days. Let me give you some dates here that are significant. These are years only, but only one date. Antiochus began his campaign to repress the Jewish religion by making decrees about 
outlawing their practices in 168. In 167, he desecrated the temple in Jerusalem, what I just described. That provoked the Maccabean revolt. This began in the countryside. A, I, I, I made the mistake of saying that the father of five sons was a high priest. He wasn't a high priest. He was of the priestly descent, not a high priest. But they decided to do something about it. They, were, they, they weren't going to let him get away with this. So this began a, a revolt. And uh, Judas Maccabees ended up being the leader after his father died. And he's the one whose name is primarily remembered. They carried on their war against the Seleucids from 167 through 160. There's a side point on that. In 164, Judas Maccabees recaptured Jerusalem. He got control of Jerusalem. And during, after he got control of it, they, they started to cleanse the temple. It took more than a day. It had been left alone and defiled and it was it needed remodeling refurbishing it needed to be cleaned they had to build a new altar there was so much that had to be done in order to get the temple up to the point where they could rededicate it and use it again so it took several months to get it ready but in that same year later in that year the temple was uh, rededicated And that happened December 25th, 164. So there's a big date in Jewish history. That is the basis for the holiday known as Hanukkah today. That's celebrating the rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabees and those who conquered for Israel. So he said, seal up the vision because it, it pertains to many days from now, actually four centuries, I already talked about that. So it doesn't have any present day application other than this is going to be of great encouragement to the Jews because it's good news about their future. Yes, they're going to go through a time of great suffering and persecution. But God has it under control. He's determined how long this is going to last. It will come to an end. It, is, it has to do with the time of the end, the end of the period known as the indignation. Daniel's response, he didn't jump for joy and start singing praises to God. Notice he lay sick. It made him sick, this vision. He was overcome by it. It had a very negative effect upon him. It says that he was appalled by it. And that's the word used back in verse 13 about making the temple desolate. When you apply that to a human, to make a human desolate means to, they're just like overcome with 
shock and horror, and they're devastated by, by it. Daniel was devastated by this vision. He was shocked by it. And notice it says he still didn't understand it. Did you catch that? And he did not understand it. He didn't understand it like we have understood it today. But see, we're on the other side. We have the advantage of the fulfillment in history to look back to, and we can tell, okay, this meant that. That's clear. Daniel, he's, he's still, it's something in the future to him. So he gets an idea of what it is. He knows it's terrible, it's frightening, it's horrible what's going to come on its people. But he doesn't quite understand the details. He doesn't know who this man is that's going to do this, this king of fierce countenance. So in the meantime, what did Daniel do? He went about the king's business. I love that. Back when I first went to Biola many years ago, right out of high school, it was college back then, they had a magazine called The King's Business. That was the Biola publication. Well, I know now, I never knew it before, it never hit me, where that title came from. It comes right out of the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel went about the king's business, namely the king who was ruling that at that time. Daniel, remember, he'd been raised up in the kingdom of Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. So he was concerned about serving those that whose rule he had a place in and whose service he was engaged in. In. But I think it says more than that. He went about the real king's business, the king of the universe, God. And this is for us today. This is whose business we need to be about. Be about the king's business in life. Don't make it about your business always. Make it about God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.